I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, Owen Jones here. Welcome to the podcast. Michael Sheen, what do I say? Not just an actor, but let's be honest, an all-round legend. We talk about a lot, including a very big exclusive, as well as Welsh independence, Brexit, and the year of COVID. I don't want to ruin the exclusives, but it is very, very good. Now, just some really quick housekeeping. This new podcast is about offering an alternative to the right-wing media, taking on injustice, speaking truth to power, also offering hope, showing there's another way, but also we're going to have some fun including in this interview it is a lot of fun we've got loads of interviews discussions documentaries for you to listen to but we want to expand and offer even more content anything you donate via the supporter function in the podcast description is hugely appreciated or go to patreon.com forward slash owen jones 84 and become a regular supporter and have a say over who we speak to what we talk about what issues we focus on it allow us to expand we have a team on union wages whatever you do though please like the show on itunes subscribe to the podcast and share the show with anyone and everyone this is a really fun interview with michael it's recorded recently all that interviews will now be up when they're recorded i hope you enjoy it michael sheen as i live and breathe hello happy christmas Merry Christmas. I decided to come to you as Father Christmas. I was going to say, I've got very severe beard. And if I try and grow a beard, I just look like I'm going through the violent throes of puberty. You and me have a glorious Welsh beard. Oh, I know. And this is trimmed. I mean, if I hadn't cut it. Oh, look. Look at there that. There he is. So he's... Oh, I love the way he's taken the focus, quite literally. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I've had the focus taken away from me by people. I know. This, this cat was brilliant. Always after the limelight, isn't he? Um, firstly... Yes. Well, just, just talk about you a little bit first, actually, just in terms of this. I mean, how are we going to... 2020, should we, should we rate that out of 10 now at the end of it? Uh, well, you know, funny enough, I was, I was thinking about this yesterday because, I mean, you know, it's obviously been a, a horrendous year in all kinds of ways. I mean, you know, I, I overwhelmingly sad at times to hear what people have gone through and just the difficulty of it and the, and the frustration and all the rest of it. But, and maybe because of that, it's also been an extraordinary year for amazing things. You know, it really, I mean, it's a cliche, but it really has brought the best and the worst out, I suppose. And, and they're obviously so interlinked. But to see how people have, have, have stepped up and, and rallied around and helped other people. And, um, and, and, and I suppose moments of coming together and connection have meant so much more to people. Um, and, you know, certainly for me, just, you know, just something as simple as, as um as you know spending your time i mean to stand on the on the front patio to talk to your mum and dad at their house you know and not being and my mum just desperately wanting to you know hug me or see the baby or you know whatever it is and those moments that i i you know i'm sure like lots of people just took for for granted really a lot of time in the past they have really really come to the fore haven't they so so as as awful and as terrible as it has been it's also been incredibly special at times and I, i'm sure you know 
everyone feels that way, no matter how difficult the things that they've gone through are. I think, like I say, because of that, the things that are good, the light is so much lighter because of how dark it's been, I suppose. I mean, what do you say? I mean, I think this is, I mean, traditionally, this is a time of reflection. It's New Year's, we're approaching, people make their resolutions, which last a few days at best. But we, it's a time of reflection. So what what for you personally do you think you've you've learned from this the most bizarre and often quite distressing year? Well, uh, we had a baby. Um, Congratulations. In, thank you very much. In, um, in September 19. Um, so our baby is sort of, you know, in growing up through all of this. So that's been, a, obviously, that's been a massive thing for us um, and, and has balanced out you know, all the stuff to do with the pandemic, really, for us, because you wake up in the morning, you've got structure, you've got routine, you've just got to look after the baby. And she brings such joy and, and happiness and delight, um, as well as sleepless nights and all the rest of it. But, you know, that that uh, that experience of, of being a, a parent again, after a long time, um, has been, you know, sort of overwhelms everything in lots of ways. So there's been a lot of that. I've certainly learned that technology has improved since the last time I was <laughs> looking after a baby. Um, so I've learned that kind of stuff. I suppose uh, w one big thing that I've learned, I guess, is um, is that things are possible when people are motivated. You know, we've heard a lot of talk in the past of, oh, and, and I think psychologically for for anyone who want, anyone who's wanted to see big change in our society and in our culture, um, and in anything really, I suppose, even in you know the organisation that you work in or, or whatever it might be, um, the, that sort of psychological barrier of uh, of oh you know things can't change they're the way they are that's it and there's you know as much as you want to change things it's just never going to happen really. I mean we've seen massive change, uh, you know, forced upon us in lots of ways. Um, but it's certainly, I think, psychologically shifted something, certainly as in me, about, about what is actually possible. Um, and I think that being carried forward could be an incredibly positive thing. Um, well, it could go either way, couldn't it, I suppose. But, um, but I think definitely for, 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 for a lot of us who want to see sort of systemic change in all kinds of ways, I think that's been a something to learn from i mean just something you know around like around homelessness and how um because of the pandemic you know people being given accommodation people put into accommodation now there's been a uh a, 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 a way of thinking about homelessness a sort of a a, a, a a sort of an ideology around it which is called housing first and essentially that means that in the past in order for people to be given uh, permanent accommodation, um, they would have to tick a lot of boxes first to go, well, I've dealt with this issue, I've dealt with this issue, I'm dealing with this issue, and then you would get, you know, housed. Um, and the housing first uh, approach has been, no, you get someone in somewhere, and then you give them wraparound support in order to, to stay in that com accommodation and, you know, give them full support afterwards, but get them into the housing first, and that creates a stability. Um, now, people have sort of started to take up the idea of housing first as an approach and some have been successful, some not so much and all that kind of stuff. But because of the pandemic, it just forced that on to local authorities. Like you just have to get people in somewhere. Um, and, and so it's sort of shown that, that um, when circumstances uh, 
you know, uh, are, are right, um, then anything really, or things that you didn't think were possible in the past suddenly become possible. Um, and that is a, that's been a big thing, certainly that I've learned. And I think, you know, everyone has in one way or another. I mean, look at the things that happened around because of, you know, uh, with the, the murder of George Floyd and, and Black Lives Matter, just that, that way of suddenly everyone kind of going, right, we, well, we have to take this seriously now and, and, and creating change in the workplace. And the, you know, all the conversations that I was a part of to do with different organizations post-pandemic and all that kind of stuff, the things that were being talked about were just, you know, they just weren't the same as they had been before in all kinds of ways. And I think that's, um, that's an incredibly positive thing. I mean, what you say there, systemic change. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, sometimes there's this kind of slightly cliched comparison between what we're going through now and World War II, and obviously they're pretty different in lots of ways. Uh, but then again, more people have died during this pandemic in Britain than died during the Blitz, uh, yeah. far more at this point. But, you know, during World War II, what that <clears throat> national emergency did is focus people's attention on things that were wrong in society. Uh, you know, you've got hungry kids evacuated, turning up, uh, knocking on doors, being looked after in the countryside, and people shocked by the poverty they saw. That yeah. helped lay the foundation for the welfare state. You had the beverage report, which laid those foundations. And I suppose during this pandemic, you know, we had the big clap for carers and a lot of focus then people thought, well, we call them the key workers, we applaud, but are they paid properly? And, yeah. you know, or, or the fact that people suddenly were sucked into universal credit and realised, actually, you can't really live in it. All the precarious workers who were one pay packet away from poverty... I mean, do you think, are we going to, because after World War II, you did get a new settlement because of that. Are you that confident this time? Do you think people clap for carers, but they'll just end up in a year's time being paid poverty wages? Nothing will really change. What do you think? Do you think it will be a catalyst or do you think? Well, what I suppose one of the frustrating things during that period of time when, you know, it was amazing, people going out and showing their... Uh, uh, how much their, their gratitude and, and their respect for, for what uh, people were doing, carers, NHS, people on the front line, people in the NHS and stuff. That was amazing. And I think was a very, you know, obviously a very quite a simple way for people to just directly show how they felt about it. What was frustrating, I suppose, was that pretty much at the same time, actual nurses and people working in, in the hospitals um, uh, were saying they didn't have the PPE. That I mean, I had a cousin of mine, um, terrified, in tears, um, saying, "Can you can you help? We're, we're, I, I have to go into work and um, in the hospital, and I have to go and work on the on the. Co this was very early on in the COVID ward, and I just I don't. We're not being given the stuff to to protect ourselves. I'm terrified, and I don't know every day when I go in, you know, what's going to happen. And um, and so it was kind of. And I know a, a lot of people brought this up at the time, but, and, and you know, in no way do you want to sort of stop people from showing their love and their gratitude. It was, I think that was great for people who are in, on the front line working and, 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 and exhausted and going through such a difficult time um, to see that kind of outpouring of, of love, really. I think that was, you know, it was important for them for morale boost and important for us to sort of show something because there's a lot of feeling of impotence during this period of time as well. Um, so that was really important. You wouldn't want to stop that. But at the same time, to kind of go, well, do you have to think about this in a, in a sort of slightly bigger picture way? Um, well, both bigger picture in terms of um, let's make sure that people get paid properly and are looked after properly long term after this. 
um, but also not just bigger picture, even more specific small picture, which is that the you know these people are going into work every day and they feel unprotected and frightened and at risk, and and that's not right. And there was a slight disconnect, I think, because because of course a lot of the money that was being raised that people thought was for the NHS for the frontline workers was going to the um, the charities um, uh, that weren't necessarily you know they weren't paying people in on the front line of the NHS it was you know support stuff around um, and I think that was a slight sort of disconnect as well um, so when it comes to yeah when it comes to long term um, I, I I mean it's interesting what you say about you know the experience of the Second World War and you're right you know a lot of people I've heard it in conversations and um, you know in meetings that I've been a part of and stuff about the idea of you know we're there is an opportunity here to build again because obviously this is you know the devastation that is caused to all kinds of parts of our culture and society and our workplaces and and, and organizations and by necessity there's going to have to be a, a, a new start a rebuilding um, and the positive aspect of that is well that also requires a sort of reimagining or at least creates the opportunity for a reimagining. If you are going to have to rebuild, then what do you want it to look like now? What are the factors that need to go into um, the, the, what are the foundations of what we're going to rebuild? No matter what the devastation is and how awful it is that the circumstances are that requires us to start again in a lot of places, the opportunity is to, to start again. And in those conversations, you know, you do you did hear a lot of comparisons about well, the, that sort of anti-government, the post-war government, and the social new social compact, and the welfare state, and the NHS was came out of that. Um, and I think you know a big part of of that, my understanding of it is that people during the the war um, suddenly had uh, an insight into other people's lives in a way that maybe they wouldn't in 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 peace time. Um, that you would find yourself next to someone or, you know, hanging out with someone during the war, whether you were a soldier or, or at home, where maybe you wouldn't come in contact with those people. You wouldn't be in contact with that social class or whatever it might be, those geographical circumstances. And suddenly there was an insight into how other people lived and what people were dealing with. And, 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 and out of that came a sort of, it was a sort of forced empathy in a way. And that out of that came a kind of a desire, a, a, a new sense of togetherness as a country, as a nation. So a sort of shared responsibility for um, for looking after each other as, as one big community, um, having had a common enemy as well, of course. Um, and 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 a sort of a new understanding of of other people's circumstances. And I think there's definitely elements of of that um, that that will come out of this. I think both in a in positive ways and negative ways positive ways in that we, we are getting to see i think into other people's circumstances in a way that is new maybe um but also i think a lot of people are going to find themselves in circumstances that they never imagined they would have you know the, the number of people who are going to find themselves on universal credit who never thought that that would be the case um are going to have a sudden understanding of what it's like to be on universal credit in a way that other people you know that, that they wouldn't have before and that is going to have an effect i think as well so i think there is both that psychological shift of going no big changes can happen i mean big changes happened after the financial crisis of 2008 2009 um it just wasn't for the people that we would like <laughs> that to be for that you know suddenly there was influxes of cash for all kinds of you know the for the 
for the financial institutions. So it, you know, it is possible. Um, it was very positive to see during this crisis that um, the big change um, was able to happen, not just for uh, the rich and the wealthy, that for people who are in in real vulnerable situations, there was um, a, 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 a big change to the to the way of dealing with that. Rather than just managing problems, solutions, immediate solutions, had to be found because it just had to be. And I think that's a big deal. That coupled with um, maybe ha having a, a, a uh, an expansion of the understanding of people's circumstances again like i say a, a, an enforced empathy in some ways um and and people finding their circumstances very very different to what they ever imagined they could be i think and with organizations and institutions already trying to think about how they can reimagine themselves how they can be innovative how they can be creative um with a lot less money around to to do the work they were doing before um i think the combination of that certainly has a lot of a lot in it to be hopeful about for everything that there is to be concerned and and and, and very anxious about there is definitely things to be hopeful for in that. um i mean on that i mean i mean firstly look i mean britain has had a shocker during this pandemic one of the worst death tolls in the world well i mean why do you think they messed it up so badly but also linking back to what you just said you're you're a proud port talbot boy and that is an example of a community in the 80s got a kicking deindustrialization got kicking again after the financial crash with austerity. I mean, what's your worry that in the aftermath of this, given they messed it up so badly and a public health, what what we learned is it's not either you look after public health or you look after the economy, they go together. So if you have a bad yeah. outbreak, you don't deal with, you get a worse economic outbreak and impact. And who ends up picking up the tab? Well, we saw what happened last time. Is your worry yeah. people in Port Talbot all over again. Yeah. Well, of course, fortunately, as Michael Gove told us uh, yesterday, um, now that we are out of the EU and we've got the trade deal, we'll now be able to do the levelling up across the country that has been stopped from happening um, purely because of being part of the EU. Um, <laughs> and if you believe that, you'll believe anything. Um, uh, so we don't need to worry about that, obviously. Thanks. So it's done. But let's pretend that's maybe not going to happen. Um, and say, yeah, I mean, the, yeah, the terrifying thing about, uh, you know, I, in some ways, the most terrifying thing um, is, you know, what what is the fallout from from this? I mean, we're going to be living, we're still dealing with the fallout from the the financial crash of, you know, oh eight oh nine. Um, the the effects of that have been devastating on communities like the one that I uh, live in again now. Um, the services that have been cut back, the local authority budgets that have been slashed and that they have to then, you know, try and work with. And, and it, it, it's just, it's been horrendous. And um, and we, we were still living with that when, when this hit. Um, and God knows how long and in what ways this is going to roll out. And of course, the, the, the really scary thing is that the same people will take the brunt of it again, you know. Um, any crisis exacerbates fissures in 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 the society um, of, of inequality, and you know we've seen the, the people and the organisations that have made loads of money out of this, um, um, and we know the people who 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 will um, lose out the most because they're the ones who always do, um, unless something changes massively. Well, why would that not continue to be the case? And um, it's I mean that is terrifying, yeah. Um, 
and of course, as usual as well, it's those communities that that stand to 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 bear the brunt of it, who who rally around the most. I mean, that's always it's always just such a powerful thing to see happening, and I've seen it here over the last year, seeing you know whether it's the local rugby club taking the meals out to people picking up people's prescriptions and you know knocking on doors and and just seeing spontaneously um community rallying around and, and people just doing extraordinary things and i mean and it's and it's you know it's always the case that it's those communities um that that, that have the hardest time of it as well and also the, the other thing that i've found as well is you know the people who in um in in normal circumstances then let's say who who are you know most mouthy about um you know immigrants and it's this lot who are to blame and that lot to blame and all that kind of stuff they you know they're not the ones who are rallying around they're not the ones who are standing there shoulder to shoulder with whoever it might be who's, who's helping community because if they were they'd know that they'd have someone standing next to them who was from Bangladesh or Poland or wherever it might be. You know, you, 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 it, it, this is very much like the war, I suppose, in that you, you, you fight for the person standing to your, to your right or to your left. And that's where the sense of solidarity comes from. And if you actually do get out there and try and help people, then immediately those barriers break down because you find yourself with the people that get, you know, mouthed about. They're the ones, you know, in there trying to help. I mean, we saw the Sikh community going down and taking food to the lorry drivers in, uh, you know, the, the other day. And uh, it, there's, there's so much of that going around. So that's the other thing that always strikes me as well. Um, I forgot what you asked me now, Owen. I'm sorry. No, no, that was exactly it. It was, you know, it was the impact, you know, that danger, yeah. that the people who pick up the tab, like in the 80s, like after the financial yeah, crash, yeah, yeah. in the community you live in, that, you, you know, that made you the man you are. Will yeah. that you know just that rerun all over again? Are they just going to get another kicking all over again? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose it's you know one very interesting thing that is developing here in Wales, and that uh, and and in Scotland, um, obviously, um, th that has happened during this period of time. Of course, is that um, the devolved nations being able to make decisions for themselves around health because of that being a devolved issue. Um, and you, you know, starting to see different um, uh, strategies, different decisions being made at different times, based on ultimately the same scientific evidence, and you know, different ways of, of coming. At. I've, I think, um, just opened up a bit more the conversation about things like you know, independence and and that kind of stuff, and and, and obviously, um, Scotland is is much further forward with those conversations anyway, and especially with having. The SNP there, and 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 you know we know the process that's going on there. But I think, but Welsh independence has become something that is much more talked about. Certainly, I mean, not that we should ever think that Twitter is the real world, <laughs> but you know, online stuff. You know, you see a lot of a lot of passion there. There always has been passion around anything like independence, but you, you know, it's 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 certainly growing. Um, I mean, it's certainly not anywhere near like a, uh, anywhere near a majority of people in Wales. But, but nevertheless, I think that, that that has been sort of sifted up a bit. And, you know, I do think that certainly in Welsh communities, you know, when you see that, I remember seeing the statistics about, you know, fairly recently, that um, the, the top seven local authority areas where and the infection rate was the highest um, were the top seven rural in Wales in the whole of the UK. Mm. Um, 
And, you know, on the one hand, people can use that as a, as a way to have a go at Welsh Labour because, you know, they're in charge here um, and say, oh, well, see, got it all wrong. Um, but on the other hand, you can also see it as, um, well, if, if, if areas of, of deprivation, um, you know, very tight-knit community, but a lot of poverty and, and that kind of stuff is around, then that is clearly a factor around why this is happening uh, so much. And so it, it, it does start to make people kind of go, it, it becomes, that's, the stakes become a lot higher about, well, why are, why are we in that position? Why is that happening here? Uh, and, and asking those questions. Um, and so that has become a much hotter issue here, you know, I think. Um, Neith Patel was, was one of the highest um, uh, places for the infection rate. And, and um, you know, obviously you do start, it does sharpen your questioning processes about <laughs> why is this happening? How can it be changed? And who is to blame? And then that opens up a whole thing about something else that I've been, you know, working on for, for a while or, or finding out more about, which is about the idea of local journalism, the collapse of local journalism. That's been a big thing that the, the need uh, and the desire and the need to have accurate information about what's going on in your local area has become very important, obviously, through this period of time um, and has highlighted the, 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 the complete collapse of that, um, not just in Wales, I mean, everywhere. Um, but, um, but I mean, we in, in Neath Patalba here, um, in, in, in the early 70s, there were like, I think there were like, five different newspaper offices locally here there were something like i think there was around so 10 to 20 local journalists um based in the town writing stories there's 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 none no. mm. one part-time reporter based in swansea reporting on patalbert and that says something you know that's that's that that that, that the idea of a democratic deficit you need every community needs like it needs like it has a right to clean water it has, it has a right it should have a right to accurate trustworthy information about its own community it needs to have its voice represented to feel like when it the questions it has the feelings it has the opinions it has are represented and the people in in positions of power and authority over that community need to be scrutinized and held to account if those three things aren't there then you're in a really dangerous situation. And in a crisis like this, it just makes that all the more important, I think. I mean, I mean it has a, has a bigger impact too, doesn't it? Because, I mean, the national media is not known, uh, and the statistics bear this out, for being representative of society. There's, it's one of the most socially exclusive professions, national journalism in the country. And one of the reasons is, you know, local journalism is a way that aspiring working-class journalists can get into the industry. They can... I don't want to glorify a world I wasn't part of, but people at the age of 16 left school, start working at the local newspaper, making cups of tea, and then they could rise up the ranks. Mm-hmm. And it's become so much harder for those voices yeah. to, to, to be heard. And, and, and there you, then you don't get a media that accurately reflects the everyday lives, the everyday needs of, of the people that they're talking about. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that's been a big issue for, uh, generally for, you know, um, smaller communities or working class communities um and 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 particularly in wales i think or i'm obviously more sensitive to it in wales but the idea of us having our own media platforms to to tell our stories and to and to share with each other 
in Wales, the, it's that's been very difficult. We get our news from England a lot of the time, um, and like I say, you know, re- reporting on what's going on in Wales often happens either from outside of Wales or certainly not from the actual areas that it's reporting on. Um, and the sort of voices you you hear in in the news tend to be higher status voices. They tend to be based on press releases and this kind of stuff. Um, and you've got this amazing network of of, of hyper local. Um, news entities going on in Wales, amazing, um, all over the place. But the problem is that the revenue streams, they, you know, they can't make money off it. And often their, their reporting just gets stolen, used without any sort of comeback by the, the bigger organizations. And, and that's a real challenge. And, and so I'm a part one of some of the things that I'm sort of involved with at the moment are partly about how to find um, new streams of revenue for hyperlocals um, right. and whether there's a way to uh, create sort of tech platforms that allow for for them to find um, a protection of their work, but also ways to to monetize what they have that's unique, which is local knowledge, intimate relationship with the communities that you're reporting on. And um, people should have to pay if they want to use that expertise. And so, trying to find a way to do that, and maybe a way to link those up into some kind of more uh, na- a, a sort of national news entity, um, but also to find. Um, pathways to uh, to remove the obstacles for, as you say, young people coming from working class backgrounds who want to get into journalism, or not just journalism actually, but journalism and uh, fiction and non-fiction writing, um, to to find pathways for them to be supported to create a we're sort of creating a, a pilot scheme to, um, to to look for people who who could benefit from that, um, have mentors, maybe people who've come. Uh, themselves from working class backgrounds who can sort of become mentors for them and to uh, help them create uh, get part of a network and get experience in in the workplaces of, of, of news offices and and you know literary uh, establishment and um, and then showcase their work and so that's um those are both things that I think are really important yeah um, I mean you mentioned the Welsh independence movement yes Wales has really gathered steam this year but I mean, what do you? Th- I mean, the pandemic. I'm sure that's part of it. But what, what else do you think is really driving that? And do you think Wales could become independent? Would you ever support Welsh independence? Well, I, I, I've been thinking about this a lot, obviously, and because um, I'm, you know, I'm living back here in Wales now as well, and uh, and and I've I've, I, I've come quite late to the to the game when it comes to all kinds of things, but um, around politics and and my understanding of of this stuff as as. Has, has grown um, massively in the last uh, few years. I was so focused on on the other things that I was doing for so many years, and um, and it was sort of a strange, circuitous path, really, that um, that through the acting world and and uh, and, and eventually be involved in a in a project that I did here in East Patalba called The Passion. Um, that sort of strangely brought me back home, literally brought me back home, ultimately, um, but also. Kind of opened my eyes to a lot of things um, that gave me a new kind of a sort of political awakening, I suppose, um, based on what people, what I was seeing people actually dealing with in their day to day lives in in this community, um, and that led me to sort of question, well, why is that? Why why every time that I come back here, I was living in America at the time, but every time I came back to Patalbert, and the people that I would work with in the community on this project, um, I would I would really notice the things that had disappeared. I'd go away for three months, come back, and suddenly that, remember there was a, a, a lady who was doing grief counselling because there was no grief counselling in the whole area. And um, she hired a room in a community centre 
once a week to do grief counseling. And she had lost her son who was in school with me actually. Um, and, um, and, and out of that experience, eventually she wanted to, to, to provide some sort of grief counseling. And I went away, came back, gone, because that room, the money that was there to sort of support her to pay for that room that she hired wasn't there anymore, cut, gone. And when you see that kind of thing happening over and over, it's one thing to read about statistics. But when you actually are meeting people and hearing about what they're doing and then finding out how these things that we hear about on the news or read in the papers or whatever, how it actually affects them, their life and their community, then you can't help but go, well, why? Why is this happening? Why when I'm when I go to other places where I'm filming in, you know, where areas in Oxfordshire when I was doing Good Omens and, you know, there was David Cameron's constituency and these sort of amazing place, gorgeous places with all kinds of services and stuff. I was like, so why do the people where I come from, why don't they deserve this? Why, why, why don't they have access to this sort of stuff? I don't understand. Why are they sort of seemingly being punished for where they live? Um, when, when you know, other people seem to not have that issue. And that opened my eyes to a lot of things. Now, part of, more latterly, that started as a bigger sort of UK-wide sort of understanding. Um, but latterly, that has, you know, I sort of honed in a bit more on specifically Wales. And, I'm, and I think I'm at the very foothills of an understanding of how Welsh history and, and what has gone on in the past here and the relationship with England and, um, and, and, and where Wales sits in the context of the United Kingdom and all that stuff, how that affects what's happening now. But I, I, but I do have the beginnings of an understanding of that. And, and again, asking questions like, well, why don't we get taught this stuff in our schools, right? And you start to see that there's a, there was a kind of a deal that was made uh, for, for, for Wales to, um, uh, to become part of Britain, to become part of the, um, to, 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 be, to share in the, uh, the rewards of empire, the British empire, there was a kind of a deal that was made, well, you know, you, you, you're not Welsh, now you're British, and, and so the Welsh language has to change, and all these kinds of things. Um, and that deal that was struck, you do start going, is that deal still, is that a good deal? <laughs> we... We benefit him from that deal. And, and especially when you hear the argument, and this is something that I've become very aware of, is that as the, the talk of Welsh independence and the Yes Cymru movement has grown, you know, the people who push back against it, all the arguments for why Wales couldn't be independent, shouldn't be independent, um, all sound, if you imagined it in terms of a relationship between people, you'd say that is an abusive relationship. No, you can't leave because if you leave, you wouldn't be able to survive on your own. You aren't strong enough or clever enough or resourceful enough to be able to survive outside this relationship. If a, if a man was saying that to a woman about his wife, you'd go, that is an unhealthy relationship, regardless of whether there's any truth in that right now. The, the, you know, the, if there is any truth in that, it's because of how unhealthy that relationship is. So... I can't help but kind of think, obviously, it's a lot more complex than being able to just, you know, mm -hmm. compare the one to the other. But if the arguments against Wales being independent or any country being independent from its sort of dominant um, overlord, uh, if the arguments are all based on that kind of unhealthy relationship, then there's something wrong there. And regardless of whether that country should be independent or not, that relationship needs fundamentally changing. Um, 
and and so I would I would want to see a Wales that has a has a free choice as to whether stay staying as part of the union or at least staying as as part of the union in its present form um or to not or to change that that not that it's well we have we can't leave because my god we'd die we, we, we wouldn't be able to survive that is not a healthy way of looking at it so in some ways regardless of 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 the arguments around whether Wales should be independent or not what those arguments seem to put into relief is how unhealthy that relationship is for Wales at the moment and how fundamentally that needs to change. And that then becomes a much bigger question. And this is something I'd like to hear your opinion about, Owen, because where does that leave the Labour Party? Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. If, if Wales, if Scotland and Wales were to push for independence... Where does that leave the Labour Party in terms of its sort of UK um, existence? Is it an egg? It, 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 it seems to me that it's an existential threat to the Labour Party. And that's why in Wales, you have a, a quite peculiar situation where I think unofficially a lot of Welsh Labour, I mean, Welsh Labour has been in charge here, you know, for God knows how long. Um, I think there's probably quite a lot of Welsh Labour politicians here who if you were to put party aside and just think about country, would be for Welsh independence, but can't say that um, because that is not the Welsh Labour position, because I think it would obviously threaten uh, the Labour Party, uh, Labour Party's existence as a, as a you know, a, a party of potentially being in power. What, what, how do you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I find it, I mean, you know, like I'm a Labour man by disposition. Uh, my cool. family have always been, you know, uh, from that tradition. But if I think about my family's side, uh, my dad's side, sorry, my dad's side of the family, as my name suggests, I do have Welsh heritage um, and his family from North Wales. And actually on that side, often very proudly part of Plaid Cymru. In fact, I've got mm. a Plaid Cymru councillor uh, on that side of the family. My, my dad only started learning English when he was six. He grew up in Merseyside, the capital of North Wales. Uh, <laughs> Welsh Methodist family, his dad, his dad was born in 1895 in a North Welsh village, died at sea in 1951. Um, but I, I find it interesting because I think the danger is from a Labour perspective, it's almost like this electoral colonialism where for a long time it was this sense of Scottish, you know, we need Scot- Scotland's votes to prop up the Labour Party. And that left 
a lot of Scottish people feeling left for granted, uh, taken yeah. for granted. That they'll just yeah. they'll vote for Labour come what may. They've got nowhere else to go, and of course they did find somewhere else to go. Well, famously, that was the Peter Mandelson thing, wasn't it? They've got exactly, and we saw that, of course, with the with the so-called Red Wall, and we've seen it as well to degree in 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 well in Wales as well. And so I think the danger is for Labour it, that the one thing they should learn more than anything, and it should be the one thing that when they wake up in the morning and go to bed, they think never take your voters, any of them, for granted. And I think a lot of people in Wales do feel taken for granted by the Labour Party. And the Labour Party sh should, you know, if it wants to keep the kind of the country together, in a sense, or re yeah. I, mean, I would support a federal country. I'd like a, a you know, a federation of Welsh, Scotland and England and, and yeah. the regions as well, the power devolved to them. But yeah. Labour's got to offer a really inspiring alternative that resonates with them because... It's, it's, you know, it, they can't just take for granted the Welsh people in a way that I think a lot of the Welsh people probably think they have been taken for granted. Yeah. And I think, I mean, obviously as well, that, you know, Labour has always been a, a challenging coalition, isn't it, of, of groups and views. And um, and that is is being stretched to, to to a really sort of crisis point, I think it, or it has been. Um, and I think certainly here in Wales as well, and we saw it in the last election, you know, obviously Brexit had a, had a lot to do with how things went in the last election. I mean, people here in Wales voting for the Tories who never thought they would have voted for the Tory before. And I, I, I certainly didn't think they would. And people did. Um, that is, again, talking about psychological shifts. Um, that was a massive psychological shift. And one that once it happened, I mean, we'll see about how difficult it is to go back. Once people have voted Tory who have been lifelong and generational Labour voters in Wales, as so many people are here. Um, once you've taken that step, Labour's going to have to work really hard <laughs> to get them back. Um, uh, or circumstances will have to, you know, that's the other thing, isn't it? We, there's been such a long period of time where all the arguments around Brexit um, have all been based on what might happen or might not happen. Once reality hits, I think that might, you know, shift things. Obviously, but um, but again, now that is going to be changed because we now what is it? What is the effects of Brexit? What's the effects of the pandemic? All of that. It's going to be in certain people's interest to kind of fudge that as much as possible and all that kind of stuff. So it'll be quite difficult. But nevertheless, I think um, uh, yeah, that the the the, the Labour voters in Wales, what has been considered as kind of locked in Labour voters, was always part of a Welsh identity, certainly a South Walian identity, talk about North Wales, but that sort of the South Wales communities that grew up in the Industrial Revolution that the Labour movement kind of grew up out of in many ways, um, that identity that had more in common in some ways with the communities in the northeast of England than it did with the north of Wales. You know, there was the language thing that was made, that made a big difference and all that kind of stuff. But those Labour voters, I think, um, are finding it much harder to recognize themselves in the Labour Party, um, especially when it comes around, you know, everyone's, everyone understands this, but, you know, once the shift towards culture wars um, is is exploiting those, that, that at times quite difficult coalition within the Labour Party, you, you know, when it's not an, an overwhelming economic argument, um, then it, it, it the, you can feel it getting very shaky, can't you? So if I was going to put my Daily Mail hat on, I'd go, oh, Michael Sheen, call yourself a man of the people. When if I looked on Wikipedia, I'd see Order of the British Empire. What do you have to say to that then? <laughs> ah, well, yes. So 
Um, I, uh, uh, in 2017, uh, I was asked to do the Raymond Williams lecture. Raymond Williams famously um, wrote a piece called Who Speaks for Wales in 1971. And I took that as my starting point for the Raymond Williams lecture to go, who speaks for Wales now? Um, and, and what I, in my research for, to do that lecture, I, um, I learned a lot about Welsh history. <laughs> like I say, I, you know, I'm still just standing at the foothills of, of an understanding of all that, but that was, that was a crash course. Um, and by the time I'd written that lecture, um, and I, I think I'd been given the OBE the year before or two years before me, um, by the time I'd finished writing that lecture on this laptop that I'm talking to you on now, wow. um, I remember sitting there going, well, I have a choice. I either don't give this lecture uh, and hold on to my OBE or I give this lecture and I have to give my OBE back. And so I wanted to still give the lecture. So I gave my OBE back. Wow. Um, yeah. And I, I, and, and I, at the time when I did that, um, I, I said, I, I, I mean, absolutely no disrespect by doing this. I don't, I'm not, I don't want to cause a big fuss about it. I was, I genuinely felt incredibly honored when I was given it. Um, it, it really meant a lot to me. And, um, and, and meant a lot to my family um, and and has and clearly helped in all kinds of ways afterwards because you know suddenly you're Michael Sheen OBE and that especially with the kind of stuff that I'm that I've been getting involved in the non-acting stuff that it, it, it helps in all kinds of ways um, so I was aware of that and so I, I didn't mean any disrespect for it I just realized I'd be a hypocrite if, if I if I said the things I was going to say in the lecture about the nature of the relationship between Wales and and the and and the British state and and the history of it and all those sort of things that still you know and people go hey, why are you getting so upset about things that happened hundreds of years ago but it's true it, it it's it's it still has a power here um, it's you know there was just when was it last year or the year before the the arguments around the naming of the new bridge across the Severn from Wales into England um, that is called the Prince of Wales Bridge the that these things have power, the idea of the Prince of Wales and, and, and that being an Englishman um, and, and the history of that. And the more you do start to understand the history of it, why, how that happened, what, why, that, why Edward made his son the Prince of Wales because it was part of keeping down the Welsh rebellion after all England and all that kind of stuff. These are things that happened so long ago, I get, mm -hmm. but these things are resonant. And so I... So I realized that I, 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 I couldn't do that. So, um, so I gave it back. And, and I said at the time that, um, that I wouldn't publicize that particularly, but if someone asked me about it, I would be transparent. Um, and, and no one's ever asked me. Wow. <laughs> well, well I ask, actually, as someone named after Owen Clindua, uh, yeah. so my, my family, my family uh, in the past, many of them in their graves, I'm sure, will be cheering you on for doing that. I mean, it's rare that actors actually like yourself to speak out, but actually will walk the walk. It's impressive. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I would, I mean, I would, I think, you know, obviously um, we're getting close to a time where there's going to be a sort of changing of the guard in the Royal family, you know, the queen who I, uh, you know, I've done a film about her. You have. <laughs> and, and I think she's a, a remarkable person who's, mm -hmm. who's, you know, done exemplary service to, to the country. Um, and and you know sadly she won't be with us for, for for much longer i guess um and when that changes and the, the requirements 
of traditional requirements would mean that the Prince of Wales would become a, a new uh, person uh, and a new Englishman. It would be, uh, I think, a, 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 a really uh, meaningful and powerful gesture, let's say, for um, th that title uh, to no longer be held uh, in the same way as it has before. That would be an incredibly meaningful thing, I think, to happen. Um, and I, I, I'm not. I'm, I'm asking for no more or less than just uh, uh, make a break there. Put some things that have been wrongs of the past right. There's an opportunity to do that at that point. Um, uh, don't necessarily just because of habit and without thinking, just carry on that tradition or, or, that was started as a humiliation to our country. That's what it was. It was a humiliation. Um, you rose up. You tried to do this to our England. Do I will now make always the son of the monarch uh, uh, be the Prince of Wales. And that is a reminder of a humiliation. Why not change that as we come up to this moment where, where things inevitably will change in? couple of last things because it's christmas you've got our kids busy times long year um just quickly you mentioned brexit so the the constituency you're in voted to leave the european union by actually a big margin about 60 percent mm. with this new brexit deal what do you think will happen in the sense that in a few years a lot of people voted to press that big red button because they thought it would have an impact on their lives mm. uh, they often felt very disillusioned and angry understandably with the way the country's run do you think in a few years, if they haven't got that change, I mean, what do you think, how do you think they feel? Or do you think there'll be a anger, betrayal? Well, I think, uh, we mentioned earlier, but I think, you know, the what Michael Gove said yesterday is very telling. Um, I mean, clearly, the levelling up of this country, the areas, the regions that have, um, uh, have, have lost so much and have had such a hard time over the last, you know, 10, 12 years, um, clearly leaving the EU is not just automatically going to mean that they can level up this whole talk of the Tory party. That Where that's coming from is an understanding that there is the possibility, in fact, the inevitability, that um, people in those areas are, are, are going to, at a certain point, go, hang on, we, we voted for, for this because our understanding was that things would then change. Why are they not changing for us? Um, I think that's fairly inevitable that that will happen unless something i mean apocalyptically different happens um then that you know that's the path we're on um and the idea that somehow um uh the 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 regeneration of areas here i mean you know you, you there was a lot talked about this at the time obviously after the vote but it, it, it's just a fact that a lot of places that uh, in the in this area where I am and and in areas like it, um, the regeneration that was happening that was much needed, the money was coming from the European Union. Um, now you know, obviously, there's the argument. So we paid in so much and we didn't get as much back and all that kind of stuff. Some places did get a lot more back than was being put in, and places like you know the areas near where I come from were getting a lot of help. Now. You talk to anyone, again, on a, like an individual basis rather than a, a region, anyone who is being given handouts to, you know, whatever, here's some money because you can't earn it yourself. Here's some money, here's some money. You, there's a resentment that builds up around that. Um, so I can, I, I can understand, partly, why people might go, even if they knew 
you know, there was a lot of stuff being said, well, people didn't realize that the, the EU money was coming in to help their area and all that kind of stuff. But even if people did know, I can still understand why people might be more resentful of that. But what it puts the onus on is, is that money going to be still coming in by once the decisions are being made by the UK government? Because if it doesn't, mm. then these areas were already finding it really difficult. And if there's going to be more cuts because of the fallout from the coronavirus pandemic, where does that leave us? Where does that leave these communities? Um, and, you know, this is where a lot of things come together in that, you know, I, when I did the Raymond Williams lecture, I talked a little bit about how us getting our news from outside of Wales meant that, there, you know, there wasn't a massive coincidence that Wales voted sort of lockstep with England pretty much around the Brexit stuff. I mean, there was a, an English nationalist party terms of UKIP had a huge influence mm. on, on Welsh people voting. Mm. I mean, they want that, that that party wants to get rid of any power that Wales has. Um, and yet Welsh people who, if you ask them, would say that they were for Wales having, you know, more power, more choice, all that stuff. They voted influenced by, by, by those views. And there's a kind of a real disconnect there. So in terms of how we process how these communities that voted for Brexit process the fallout and the consequences from it is going to depend on on a lot of our infrastructure changing, our media infrastructure, our, our, our connection as a country, all kinds of things. But that will obviously be uh, attempted to be manipulated so that people don't join the dots together. And um, uh, and so it could go in all kinds of ways. It could go, I mean, I suppose in some ways the most disheartening thing would be if people just went, well, I'm not bothering anymore. And just, you know, if people get angry, that's, I think, much more positive than people just disconnecting. Um, I, I, I would hope that people would get inspired, motivated, galvanized to um, to to not to try and look further and deeper into why things have happened the way they are, and then try and become uh, active in trying to change that. That's what I would hope. My fear would be that it just makes people disconnect and and believe that the the political process or any kind of um, uh, process uh, is just not worth it. Do you know what I mean? That would be my big fear. The other thing I wanted to ask you about is uh, my act events will just kill me if I don't ask. Uh, the crisis of the arts during this this pandemic. I mean, uh, I mean, tell me. I mean, because obviously, so I mean, you've done a brilliant TV show, by the way. It must have been really fun. Be, that's on next week, isn't it? It's back on next week. Well, the yeah. second series of stage starts. Uh, yes, on January the fourth. I mean, that must have been a lot of fun. But, I mean, what do you think in terms of the crisis of the arts? What can be done and What's the impact, do you think, on... Because you know a lot of people affected, of course. Yeah, I mean, God, it's been... It's been devastating. You know, I'm, I'm sort of amazed that more theatres haven't closed for good. I mean, we, the fact that a number of theatres, regional theatres, have closed for good is is tragic. And, and But I'm sort of amazed that more haven't, really. Um, and, of course, all the freelance people working... And not just actors, not just performers, but, you know, people working in those theatres... Um, uh, you know, crew, people work in front of house, all of the people involved, um, musicians, you know, all throughout the arts. It's uh, this idea that some of the arts is a sort of luxury add on to what we do that um, uh, is just, you know, it's just not true. <laughs> um, how we how we process what's going on for us, um, how we uh, understand where we've been who we've been, who we are, where we are, and where we're going, and who we can be. The, the most concrete 
uh, and effective way of doing that is through the arts, is through the stories we tell. And the stories we make up are stories that we use to escape that actually aren't an escape at all. They're just a different way of coming back to, to where we are. Those, that's at the heart of mm. yeah. That's That's not an add-on. That's not a luxury. That's at the heart. And yet, because storytellers have always been sort of on the outside of it, and, and, and in some ways so they should be, the, the fact that they're able to tell stories about what's going on is because they have a bit of separation, that they're not fully accepted, they're not fully... Um, um, welcomed in and that as artists that's always it's always a big challenge is the more you know i was given an ob <laughs> come on into the establishment <laughs> um, all of that kind of stuff you know that, that there's there's always that that juggling act that balancing act about how much you want to be successful you want to do well you want to have more choice um but the more successful you are into uh, uh, as as society judges it um the more difficult it is to be on the outside because you're sort of welcomed in. Um, so the fact that storytellers uh, and people who work in that area are sort of on the outside a bit um, has, has, has shown how vulnerable they are when it comes to you know, situations that we're going through now because um, they, was, they, they were seen as a sort of add-on during all that as well. Oh, oh, they want money. Oh, they want a bit of help. Oh, no, they're not. They're not small businesses, are they? They're not this, they're not that. They're just a luxury adult. So if they go, if they don't survive, well, there you go. Retrain. You can be something else. Go and learn code. Um, that's that attitude. It's sort of a little bit like when I used to do, when I was doing tours of plays and you'd be in a different town each week and on the sort of Monday night of the performance, you know, the great and the good would come and have a drink with the actors in the bar of that theatre, wherever. And the question you get asked the most is, so is this your proper job? What do you do? What do you do normally? Like, no, this is not a hobby. <laughs> this is what I do. Um, and that sort of somehow sense of like people in the arts, are, it's just a hobby, really, isn't it? So if, if you can't do it anymore, if it all goes away, it's not that big a deal. No, it is fundamental to who we are and who we can be. Mm -hmm. um, and if we didn't, if we didn't have the opportunity to, to process it through the arts, then we will become fundamentally, fundamentally diminished as a nation. I mean, it would be the death of us. Um, and I don't mean that sort of, you know, metaphorically. We, we would, something would die in us if we weren't able to tell those stories and, and, and share that. Um, so it has to be supported. So yes, long-term, uh, you know, again, there's, there's always been a contradiction in the arts that some of the most influential practitioners, theater companies, artists, musicians are not the most commercially successful um but they have a massive influence and they and they and they change everything you know uh, people coming after them who do become more commercially successful um uh, wouldn't be able to do that if they hadn't been influenced by those hmm. pioneers and those groundbreakers if there isn't the support for them if it's all just based on the market um ideology and you know and, and the sort of capitalist view of it that unless it's you know commercially sustainable then it goes the, the ecosystem the artistic ecosystem and i i would believe our entire ecosystem it doesn't work like that mm -hmm. so you have to be able to support what can't um support itself necessarily within the the framework that we're in because that is a faulty framework so you can't just let them all go to the wall you know like um like people with asthma during covid you know, as, as you know, again, something that someone said uh, the other day about, well, you know, 
It's only a small percentage of people who are dying, and they're all sick anyway. So you know, I mean that mm. that attitude is is revolting, I mean, genuinely barbaric. It's um, horrific. Yeah, extraordinary. Um, super final quick question. You've played the previous Labour leader Tony Blair a few times, actually. Um, mm. What's it, any impression of Keir Starmer? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm uh, I think I'm like a lot of people sort of un, unsure as to what, where, he's, where he sort of sits. I mean, uh, it's such a particular time for the Labour Party itself, isn't it, in terms of its identity? Who, who is it Who is it for now? I know. I mean, I've, you know, we've talked for hours in the past about, mm-hmm. about how the Labour Party grew, what the Labour Party grew out of, its values, its ideals, and why it, why it became into being and, and, and what should be driving it, what does drive it. Um, that is changing. That you know, we're, we're in a situation where, where big political tectonic plates, uh, cultural plates, are shifting so much, and the parties, the traditional parties, are, and particularly Labour, I think, is having to really, you know, try and adapt. And I don't think it even knows quite what it's adapting to at the moment because it's still playing out. And I think Starmer as a leader of the Labour Party, is a kind of reflection of that in a, in a lot of ways. I, I, I can't, I don't know quite what he's all about and, 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 and what he represents and where he's going to take the party. I mean, I think everyone has to be quite reactive at the moment, don't they? That seems to be the case. That seems to be the way people are playing out. He's clearly a smart man. He's clearly clever. He's got, you know, that legal mind. He's very good at Prime Minister's questions and all that. But as a, I don't know, as a leader, an inspirational leader, of a party that should be representing the most vulnerable, um, uh, that should be fighting to try and change the system itself so that it doesn't favour the few over the many. You know, these sort of things, whether he's the person to um, to be able to lead that, I don't know. Um, time will tell, I suppose. Michael, an absolute honour. So much wisdom, so much insight. An excellent beard, which, by the way, I don't know if you're aware of this, one beard of the year yesterday, the Beard Liberation Front does yes! annual beard awards, and they've yes! actually awarded your beard as beard of the year. So excellent, well done! It is a superb beard. I think it is a. I think of all the beards out there, there were some good beards out there. I'm not knocking them, but your beard, I think, justifiably won this year. You see, who needs an OBE when you've got this OBE? Old exactly. beard head, old beardy head. <laughs> So maybe, maybe one day. Um, so happy new year. Let's hope 2021 is an improvement on this year. Albert, that is a very low bar, but uh, I'm very much looking forward for the next installment of your, of the series, but lots of love. Great. Thanks, Owen. All the best. Happy new year. Cheers, Michael. Happy new year. I love chatting to Michael. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Don't forget to like the show on iTunes, subscribe to the podcast and share this show with with everyone. If you want to support us as we expand, we do appreciate it a lot, either on the supporter function in the podcast description or at patreon.com forward slash owenjones84. We've got a lot to come, so speak soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.